Well, I invite you to take your Bible and turn with me uh, to a couple places. First, to Genesis chapter 17. Genesis chapter 17. If you were here last week, uh, we had begun speaking about uh, some questions that arise regarding baptism. And uh, the second question we had asked last week was the question, uh, should infants be baptized? Uh, Should those uh, born to believing parents be baptized? And we began giving an answer to that question last week, um, but I didn't kind of run out of time. And so we're going to spend a bit more time answering that question again this week, uh, beginning here with Genesis chapter 17, and then we'll turn to Acts chapter 2. So Genesis 17, if you need the page, it's on page 11, if you're using a Bible here. I'll read the first 14 verses. This is the holy and inspired word of God. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. That's what the name Abraham means, a father of a multitude. Verse 6, I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you, throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So, so shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. We're going to turn to Acts chapter 2. Before we do, notice uh, just some of the language that we had just read, this repeated phrase uh, over and over again as the Lord makes this covenant, uh, this agreement, this, this uh, relationship with Abraham. In verse 7, uh, and we read at the end of verse 7 that this promise, this covenant, will be to you and to your offspring after you. Verse 8, again, we have that same language repeated again. Uh, to you and to your offspring after you. Uh, verse 9, we have that language again, you and your offspring after you, right? Four, three or four times here, we have that exact repeated phrase, you and your offspring. And his offspring are then to receive the sign of the covenant, which was circumcision. But again, note that phrase, you and your offspring, not just you, but you and your offspring, right? We get the point. Turn to Acts chapter 2. And we'll read there. Uh, verses just 36 through 39. So some of the context here 
is that uh, the day of Pentecost has come. Uh, Jesus Christ has come. He has um, accomplished his work of salvation. He has ascended into heaven. And from there, he sends the Holy Spirit upon his church. And in a sense, inaugurating the New Testament church. Uh, the church that continues even into our own day. We belong to this church. Uh, the one church of Jesus Christ. And Peter, uh, on the day of Pentecost, gives this sermon. At the end of this sermon, as he calls them to uh, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, he says these words um, in Acts chapter 2, verse 36. He says, in concluding his sermon, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So far from... uh, God's holy word. Turn to one more place um, in the back of the hymnal. We'll turn to Lord's Day 27 on page 884. We're only going to look at question 74. Let's give you just one moment to turn there. All right. So question 74 asks this, and we'll respond together with the answer. So 74 asks, should infants also be baptized? Yes, infants as well as adults are included in God's covenant and people, and they, no less than adults, are promised deliverance from sin through Christ's blood and the Holy Spirit who works faith. Therefore, by baptism, the sign of the covenant they too should be incorporated into the Christian church and distinguished from the children of unbelievers. This was done in the Old Testament by circumcision, which was replaced in the New Testament by baptism. So far from the catechism. Brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ, we've been spending, this is our third week now, uh, talking about baptism. We have said over and over again that baptism is first and foremost something that God gives and something in which God speaks uh, to us. A common idea regarding baptism today is that it's merely my words. It's kind of um, identified with our own profession of faith, right? Baptism is simply me saying that I'm going to follow the Lord. And of course, that's partly part of baptism. But first and foremost, baptism is something in which God speaks and something which God does. Baptism is a sign and seal of the invisible reality that we have been cleansed by Christ's blood, that our sins might be forgiven, and by his spirit, that we might be renewed and sanctified to newness of life. Right? Baptism is first and foremost a sign of the covenant that God makes with his people. It's God who initiates. It's God who gives us this sign. It's God who first speaks in the sign and the sacraments of baptism. It's a sign of washing, a sign of being washed with the blood of Christ and washed with the Spirit. And so we've been talking about this for some time now. And the question that arises from this then is, should infants, should our children born to believing parents within the church be baptized? And of course, the catechism answers with a very definitive yes. And I recognize that there's some 
uh, debate regarding this. There are other denominations and other churches that are faithful churches uh, who hold to a different position on this. But as we think about this within our own church, uh, we believe the scriptures to teach very clearly that infants, the children of believers, uh, should be baptized. They should receive the sign of the covenant because they are members of the church of Christ. We do not baptize on the basis of peering into the secret decree of God's election. We don't baptize on the basis of saying, well, these are elect children. But we baptize on the basis of the promise that has been given. This promise is for you and for your children, as we read here. And so as we think about this question a little bit further, should infants be baptized? I want to do it in two parts. Uh, we're, We're probably familiar with the distinguishing between the forest and the trees, right? And I think we have to begin with the forest. What's the big picture of the Bible here in order to see that just as children were included in the covenant in the Old Testament, so too children should be included in the covenant in the New Testament, that things have not uh, changed in that regard. And so so first we want to see the forest, and then we'll zoom into some passages that you may have uh, yourself appealed to or somebody has appealed to uh, to convince you of infant baptism. And we'll look at those passages because I think on their own, they're not always very conclusive, or they're not on their own very uh, persuasive at times. But if we see the whole picture, all of a sudden, all of the verses that we begin looking at fit that large picture. It shows a cohesiveness. It shows uh, a common teaching uh, that is found as a, as a simple thread that runs through God's uh, word. Right? And so our desire, of course, first and foremost, is to be faithful to the scriptures. It should be all of our desires uh, who desire to follow Christ, uh, to be faithful to the word of God. And so we want to demonstrate that from the word by looking first at the forest and then at some of the more specific trees, these, little, these more specific verses here. So first we'll begin with the forest. You notice um, the language that was used in Genesis 17, right? I uh, drawn our attention to that earlier. Right? Over and over again, Abraham is given this language, this promise, that the promise is for you and for your offspring. Right? Over and over again. And we see this example, uh, demonstrated for us in that context as well, because as that promise is not just for Abraham individually, but for his offspring as well, his offspring then are to receive the sign of the covenant. Right? That's what Genesis 17 teaches us. That the children of Abraham received the sign of the covenant, which in the Old Testament was circumcision. And they received that sign because they belonged to the people of God. The promise was for Abraham and for his offspring. And that language is not just passed over, but again, it's, it's strongly emphasized. Um, if you're familiar with Hebrew narrative, uh, which, you know, if you read your Hebrew Bibles, you kind of pick up on this at some point. Well, your English Bibles, which are originally in Hebrew. Um, but you pick up on the fact that Hebrew narrative loves to repeat things so that we don't miss the point. Um, repetition was a sign of good Hebrew narrative writing and often was the way in which the emphasis, the point of the narrative would be conveyed. And so the fact that this phrase, to you and your offspring after you, is repeated is meant to be highlighted. It's as if uh, they were able to use like italicized bold font, like over and over again there to see this point that the promise given to, to Abraham was one which was to you and to your offspring. Right, I'm kind of belaboring this point, but it's very important for us to see uh, what is being emphasized with this covenant being made with Abraham. And so Abraham, because this promise was made to him and to his offspring, his offspring were to be circumcised. They were to receive the sign of the covenant. 
And that's important for us to see because when we turn uh, to Acts chapter 2, what we find going on here is that the very same language that was given uh, in the covenant with Abraham is far from retracted in the covenant that has now been established, the new covenant, right? It's not retracted in any sense, but in fact, it's repeated, right? As Peter uh, says uh, to those who hear his sermon, he says the promise, verse 39 or 38, the promise is for you and your children. Again, it's, it's meant to echo the language that was given back in Genesis chapter 17, Right, so Paul is, uh, rather Peter is saying here is that, is that what was true then remains the case even now. Right, what was true then as a promise was for you and for your offspring, so now that the promise remains for you and for your offspring. What has changed is not, being, is not a, 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 a subtraction, nothing's been subtracted, but rather things have been increased, more has been given. Because right, he goes on to say, to you and your offspring and those who are far off. Right? That's the newness. Those who are far off. That's, what, that's the point that Peter is making here. He's, he's echoing the language of Genesis 17, to you and your offspring. And he's saying, and now much more. Now to those who are far off. And so the rest of the book of Acts is going to be about those who are far off being brought in to the covenant. And that's why the emphasis and the stories that are recorded for us in Acts, right? Luke didn't just write a, a bare narrative of just recording events that are taking place, right? He's selecting events. He's being very selective. And, and Luke tells us as he writes the book of Acts that the whole, uh, what, what the book is going to trace is the gospel going out to those who are far off, beginning in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And that's what the whole narrative of Acts follows, which is why... As we, the, the specific events and stories that we read throughout the book of Acts, we read of those who are outside of the covenant being brought into the covenant by which they repent and believe and are baptized. But right, no example do we find in the book of Acts of people born to believing parents, born in the covenant, right? not those who are far off, but born to believing parents who are then baptized as adults. Right, we have those who are already outside the covenant, those who are far off, now being brought in. And we too would affirm, as our church would affirm, that those who are far off outside of the covenant are to profess their faith and then be baptized. Right? That's, that's agreed upon by all. But what we don't see in Acts and what we don't teach here is that those born children born to believing parents are not to be received into the church are not to be received the sign of the covenant, but are to later in life, once professing faith, be baptized. Again, there's no argument, there's no example of that in the scriptures themselves. Not a single example of, again, somebody born to believing parents um, being baptized as adults in Acts. And so uh, we recognize then that when we connect Genesis 17 and Acts chapter 2, what Peter is saying is that what was true of the old covenant remains true in the new covenant and more. Not subtracting, but increasing, progressing, growing. Uh, often we can think about this in terms of a seed being planted, right? The seed of the covenant planted in the Old Testament. And that seed now begins to sprout, sprout roots um, and a stem shoots up and leaves come, right? It's the same seed 
right? There's continuity, there's, but there's also growth. There's more. And so even when moving from Genesis 17 to Acts chapter 2, we see not subtraction, right? There's no statement saying, well, now the children who were once involved and once members of the church now must be removed. Rather, we see, no, they're to continue and more. Now those who are far off, now the church has a mission to go and bring the gospel to those who are far off and bring them in, which Israel while a light to the nations in the Old Testament, did not have an active missionary outward focus, right? They, they, they were to maintain their own ways. They, they, they were not going out into the surrounding nations, but they were to guard themselves against the surrounding nations. But now, as the church goes out, those who are far off are being brought near. Just trying to belabor the point here, uh, just so we see the, the, the echo of Genesis 17 by Peter in Acts chapter 2. What was true then remains true now and more. And so children, as they were welcomed into the covenant in the old covenant, remain welcomed in the covenant of, in the new covenant. And they, to them too remain the promise, and the promise is given. And the larger context in which that happens is the fact to say that the covenant made with Abraham and the covenant of the new, the new covenant are of one essence. Right? It's not two different covenants. It's the same covenant, the covenant of grace, applied to Abraham and now having progressed, being applied to the New Testament church. What was true then remains true now. And, no, and there's no statement in which that is retracted in the New Testament. And, be, be, and you know, be, remember that the early church, as they're dealing with these issues, didn't have the New Testament scriptures as we have them completed. As they were thinking through these issues, they primarily had the Old Testament that we have here as well. And so as they saw that, that children were welcomed into the people of God then, so they recognized that children were to be welcomed uh, even uh, still today. The promise is for you and for your offspring, Abraham. The promise is for you and your children, people of God today, and those who are far off. That's the point. That's the echo that is being said here. And so, with that being said, kind of a little bit of a larger picture, a bit, a bit the forest here, we can zoom into some verses that, that solidify this. Uh, do, you know, do, do verses in the New Testament support this idea? And so one to turn to is uh, Colossians chapter 2. You can turn there with me if you would like. And Paul's point here is, of course, not necessarily, you know, to answer our question, right? Should infants be baptized? We have to recognize that. It's not a direct answer to our question. But we have to also pick up what is assumed in Paul's writing, right? What, what, is, what is Paul recognizing in terms of the relationship between circumcision and baptism? Circumcision being a sign of the covenant for you and for your children. Baptism being the sign of the covenant for you and for your children, right? How does Paul recognize uh, the relationship between those two? It's Colossians chapter 2, verse 11. Paul says this, that in him that's in Christ, also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. 
Right? So Paul can speak of the church and say that you've been circumcised, not with hands, right? He's speaking of a spiritual reality. And that circumcision was signified and sealed to you in your baptism. Again, again, right, Paul can, can, can see the link between these two realities, these two covenant signs. The covenant sign of the old, the covenant sign of the new. And likely within the, within this, uh, the, the context of this letter as a whole, uh, the, the Christians here were being told that they need to go back to the old covenant, which meant they need to be circumcised and all these other things that they need to begin uh, following and adhering to. But Paul is saying that, no, you don't have to be physically circumcised because you were baptized. Uh, your baptism is that which the circumcision always pointed to. Right? Spirit, circumcision was never just an external sign in the Old Testament, but it was meant to point to a spiritual reality. That's why in the Old Testament they can also be told, circumcise your hearts. Again, so it was pointing to a spiritual reality like every covenant sign does, a visible sign pointing to an invisible reality. And what Paul is saying here is that circumcision in the Old Testament as a covenant sign and baptism in the New Testament as a covenant sign both pointed to that one same reality. And that reality was sharing in the death of Jesus Christ in a saving way. Paul speaks of this in the exact same way in Romans uh, chapter 4. Romans chapter 4, verse 11. Here Paul is reflecting on Abraham and said that he, Abraham, received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith. Circumcision was a seal, as Paul says here, of the righteousness he had by faith. The very same righteousness that is sealed now by baptism. Right? They're pointing as visible signs, to the same invisible reality. So Paul is saying very clearly, right? The righteousness that Abraham had is no different than the righteousness that we have. It is ultimately the righteousness of Christ. Abraham's, as a sign of circumcision, looked forward to it, which is why it is, it's a bloody event that takes place as a sign. Right? It looks forward to the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. But now that Christ has been sacrificed, baptism now is no longer a sign of blood, right? But a cleansing, one that looks again to that same reality of the cross of Christ. Both point to that one same reality. And therefore, we are right to say with the catechism that um, circumcision was replaced in the New Testament by baptism. They both pointed to the same reality and the pivot point was the fact that Jesus Christ has come. What circumcision looked forward to has been fulfilled, and now baptism is looking back on that very same um, reality. Right, and so, for you and for your offspring, Abraham, for you and for your children, church, and the promise that was once uh, pointed to in terms of circumcision is the same thing pointed to now by baptism. And so let's look a little bit more at a few more of the trees Again, to support this reading uh, uh, and understanding of baptism. Matthew 19, uh, Jesus says this. He says, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belong the kingdom of heaven. 
They were members of the people of God, and therefore they were not to be hindered from coming to Christ. And that's the same with our children as well. They are, to them belong the kingdom of heaven. And they are to be received, even as Christ receives them. You can also read Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 18, but we'll skip over those for now. A very similar point. He says, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. To such belong the kingdom of heaven, right? Jesus himself um, viewed. Now, again, left, if these were just isolated texts, they wouldn't provide necessarily a very strong argument. But again, within the wider context we've been talking about, this makes a lot of sense in support of the fact that children are to be received into God's covenant and as members of the church. A couple more passages in Ephesians uh, chapter 5. Actually, we'll turn to 1 Corinthians 7 first. Again, a very uh, pointed statement from the Apostle Paul regarding the children of believers. 1 Corinthians 7 verse 14. Paul says this, For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. All right, so it's a statement you have to reckon with, right? Paul is saying that the children of believing, whether both parents are believing or one parent is believing, their children are holy. It's a statement of fact that Paul is making. Again, it's not something we can just push under the rug. It's a statement of fact that we need to reckon with. What does Paul mean when he says that the children of believers are holy? Well, it does not mean that they are purely sanctified. I mean, you can, you know our children, right? They could be uh, difficult at times. What he means when he speaks of them as holy is in a very objective sense, that they are members of the church, that they have been set apart, that they belong to the Lord. They are, in fact, holy. And we should be able to use Scripture's own language to speak of our children, not to speak of them as, you know, vipers and diapers, not to speak of them as those who are no different than the children of unbelievers. There is something different, right? Paul is saying that here, that they are holy, period, which means they are members of the church and therefore should receive the sign of the covenant. This is reflected also in Ephesians chapter 5, Ephesians chapter 5, uh, verse 18. Actually, uh, actually, we'll turn to chapter 6, verse 1. <clears throat> Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1. Notice, as Paul is writing this letter to the church, right? Paul is writing this letter to the church in Ephesus, to the saints who are in Ephesus, right? He's addressing his letter to them, verse 1 of chapter 1, to the saints who are in Ephesus. He then in verse, uh, chapter 6, verse 1, addresses the children. But notice, he doesn't say, okay, now to say, speak to the children as distinguished from the saints who are in Ephesus, the church that is in Ephesus, those, the holy ones, the word saints and holy are the same word, the holy ones in Ephesus, your children are holy, the holy ones in Ephesus, right? Paul doesn't say, now, now let me say an aside here and speak now just to the children, distinguishing them from the saints in Ephesus, the holy ones in Ephesus. Remember, the children of believers are holy. Rather, what he does here is he says children, just simply addresses them in the same way he addressed husbands, in the same way he addressed wives, in the same way, right? Children, obey your parents in the Lord. Right? So Paul didn't even necessarily need to add in the Lord. 
because he's, he's addressing the children as those who are saints. Again, he's not saying that they are perfected. He's not saying, but he's saying that they are, by, by this statement, what he's saying is that they are members of the church, that the children of believers are holy. And therefore, on that basis, he says, children, obey your parents in the Lord. So adding on that phrase, in the Lord, strengthens the argument all the more. Because he recognized that these children are, in fact, in the Lord. They are members of his body. They're members of his church, and that calls them then to obedience. It calls them then to responsibility. Right, so 1 Corinthians 7, Ephesians 6, verse 1, these are part of the trees that fit this larger yeah, part of the, the trees that fit this larger picture, the forest before us, promises for you and for your offspring. The promises for you and for your children, right? That is the, uh, a, a um, strong sense of continuity, that nothing has been subtracted. Only things have been given and added on to that. Now it is also to those who are far off. And so I recognize that much more can be said here, and I'm already out of time. But let me uh, quickly answer just a couple of objections that people might raise and then we'll come to a conclusion. So first, people might say, well, if we baptize children, then doesn't this remove the responsibility of children to believe and to repent? And the answer is no. In fact, in our uh, public form of profession of faith, uh, which we pray that our children will one day confess, our children who were baptized will be asked this question, do you openly accept the promise sealed to you and signified to you in your baptism. Do you openly accept it? It's within the context of the covenant community as members of the church that our children are to be taught and called to faith and to repentance. So they might receive fully what was promised to them in their baptism. So it certainly does not remove um, responsibility. What we're teaching here is certainly not baptismal regeneration, that if you're baptized, you're saved, and that's it. What we're saying here is that you are baptized as a member of the church, it's belonging to the church, and therefore that you have responsibility. Uh, the children have responsibility. The parents, as we spoke about last week, have responsibility. And all of us have responsibilities uh, to nurture and pray for the children of this congregation. Uh, another objection that could be raised is that, well, a, children, a child isn't conscious when they are baptized. Well, again, baptism is first and foremost not something we say to God, but something God says to us first and foremost, right? Baptism is God speaking, making his word visible, giving his promises uh, to our children. And also, likewise, as that reflects the way of salvation, I had mentioned this last week and asked this question, but were you conscious when the Lord saved you? Right? right we were, no, we were spiritually dead. We were not conscious. And so God comes to us um, and saves us and gives us his promises. He initiates, he speaks this word of promise first to us. And again, that calls our children then to respond to that properly by believing the promise and by receiving that promise openly, as we say. Uh, secondly, doesn't the Bible, or thirdly, third objection, doesn't the Bible say they be, people were believed first and then were baptized? Well, yes, we see that throughout the scriptures, specifically as those who were outside of the covenant, those who were far off being brought in, and that would be true for us today, right? If you were not born to believing parents, if you were coming from outside of the covenant, then we would have you profess your faith first and then be baptized. You'd be brought into the covenant 
and then receive the sign of the covenant. Um, But again, what we see here is referring to those who are outside of the covenant, those who are far off. But the promise is for you and for your children. And they, therefore, are baptized and then called to believe and receive and openly accept that promise given uh, to them. So a number of other objections could be raised uh, to baptism, um, but hopefully at least we have an idea of of the, the forest, right? The, the one covenant of grace that was true of Abraham remains true today for you and for your children. And we have the trees then in which we have Paul addressing children as saints, holy ones, and even calling them holy, meaning that they are members of the church. And as members, they receive the sign of circumcision, sign of baptism, um, a spiritual circumcision, as Paul says in Colossians chapter 2. And therefore, uh, we call our children as those baptized to believe the promises given to them, uh, believe the divine pledge of God given to them in baptism. And we, as a congregation, then pray for them, speak truth to them, nurture them in the way of everlasting life. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for your word, for the coherence of it, uh, the way in which uh, all the parts uh, work together. Uh, in such a beautiful harmony. Uh, Father, we ask that um, we would be um, perceptive uh, to that continuity, to that harmony. And even as we've thought through these things, may um, our thoughts be ever taken captive uh, by your word and submitted uh, to Christ. Help us to see these matters clearly. And help us, uh, we also pray at this time for our children, Lord, that as those who have received your promise, that they might uh, in due time openly accept those promises, believe them, and that they might be brought into full communion uh, within this church. Uh, We ask, Lord, that you would bless them, bless the parents of this congregation, and bless all of us, that we might be diligent in caring for our children, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.